Welcome, everyone, to another thrilling, exciting, action-packed episode of Adventures in DevOps. And today, we have Jonathan Hall with us. Hey, guys. How's it going? And we have Jillian Rowe. Hello. I'm the other part of the Adventures in DevOps crew in the studio. I'm Will Button. And today, we have a guest I've actually known. We were just trying to figure out how long I've known Stephen. We think it's been around 10 years. We're both in Arizona and... Stephen is our guest today, and we're going to be talking about AWS identity and access management. And what set this conversation up is I had him on my YouTube channel a week ago, and I've been working with AWS for 10 years or so, if not longer. And in the half hour conversation I had with Stephen, I learned more about IAM than I've learned in the past 10 years. So I thought this info is just too good not to put out to the podcast so that everyone listening can learn from his expertise as well. So in case you haven't figured out, our guest today is Stephen Kinsley. Stephen, welcome. Thanks, Will. Thanks for the intro. Yeah. Uh, yeah and I'm Stephen, and I've been doing DevOps a long time, since before we called it DevOps, like since the early 2000s. And I got uh, building products, and I had trouble getting those products to production. So I got into DevOps, and one of the things that I encountered when leading cloud migrations is that the hardest part of getting apps into containers in the cloud was actually the IAM. And so now I'm focused on making AWS IAM usable for cloud teams, for DevOps, and to integrate into continuous delivery pipelines. And it's a lot, of, it's really hard, but it's a lot of fun, uh, especially to hear uh, folks like Will, thank you for that compliment, say, like, hey, finally understand how, well, more about how this works. I don't know if anyone understands I am, but yeah, you know, we can, we can, we can actually lock this stuff down and um, uh, get some security and hopefully make it usable so that we can like, just get our apps uh, to production and get some, get customers using them. You remember that time where you ran into that works on my machine kind of problem and you get in and you're thinking, okay, I checked the libraries, I checked everything else. And then it turns out that there's something really weird about the production data that's just different from your test data. Or maybe you're thinking, man, it'd be nice if I had a database that was as large as the production database so that I could actually see what the performance characteristics are. But you can't copy the production data because you don't want to have all the customer information on your computer. Plus, you may be running into regulatory things like financial or medical. So what do you do? Well, you try out tonic.ai. Tonic.ai will look at your data set, will do the analysis, and will build you a customized data set for your application so that you can test it and run it on CI and on your development machine without exposing any of the actual data from production. It's awesome. It's easy to use, and it's definitely worth checking out. So go check them out at tonic.ai. Yeah, get them to production in a secure way. Because I think whenever we talked last week about this, that was the key is AWS makes it pretty easy to get some kind of AIM policy out there that lets your app work. The hard part is, what else did I just give that access to? Right, right. The key is to go fast safely. Yeah, much like drag racing. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes every once in a while you, you deny access to everything, and and uh, 
the whole, you know, your, your monitoring dashboard looks like it exploded. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes I to IAM. Horror stories. Oh, right. <laughs> All the horror stories. I'm sure Steven has a few. Most of mine are self-inflicted. Actually, all of them are. That's so funny. I mean, I'll still hear about those two. Yeah, and, and that's the key. Is like they're, they're self-inflicted, and we kind of, as as engineers, we often kind of sort of blame ourselves, like, "Oh, I must be using it wrong." But you know, there's IAM has this like really complex evaluation model, and it's, it's very flexible. So you can solve almost any problem, uh, any access control problem with IAM. I think the key is to actually simplify it so you solve the ones that matter to your application teams, your infrastructure teams, et cetera, and like package those into reusable solutions. Because like you you don't need to use all of IAM. In fact, I'm a big advocate of using just like a few parts of it. So you said packaging it up, and that was one of the things I learned from you is that you don't even write your own IAM policies. You have a set of libraries you've developed that generate those policies for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I can't write the policies that the libraries generate. I can only write code that writes the policies. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, we, one of the, by, by packaging up solutions, I'll say like one of the most powerful things that you can do in IAM is use resource policies to create what are called resource boundaries. And that's like a 64,000 or $64 million word. We'll we can dig into that a little bit later. But basically, it's the idea of putting an access control directly on the data resource, like whether it's an S3 bucket or like a KMS key. And so one, one trick, one really powerful trick that you can use in AWS is you can encrypt all your data with a KMS key. And if you, and when you use the customer managed key, you can specify a policy on it where you where you can't so much with like that default sort of encryption that you get with S3. Everybody can can decrypt that data. But if you use a customer managed key, you can specify a custom key policy and allow just the people you want to have access to it and you can deny everyone else. So that's what uh, that's the big trick that one of our libraries does and you can create you can control access to the entire data domain that way. So you can encrypt data in RDS or S3 or whatever, and go to one place to look at the policy that controls access to that data. That is very cool. Yeah. And then, of course, you you use, you use do that with Terraform or CDK or Pulumi or whatever. You like write that thing once and reuse it a bunch of times because, believe me, like you're not going to write that policy correctly like on a on a repeatable oh, I you. yeah <laughs> i was just sitting here thinking to myself i really wish i'd had that a couple months ago yeah yeah that has been my experience with iam and not just from aws i actually use google cloud more than, than aws but the same concepts right and you know, you know yep. i feel like i feel like the core problem is that their documentation for both platforms kind of assumes you already have a mental model of how everything works together and tells you, you know, assuming you know that you want to go from A to B, here's how you get there. But it doesn't tell you, do you, should I want to go from A to B? <laughs> it, do, it doesn't, <laughs> it, it doesn't really direct, it doesn't give you a map. It gives you like the, it, it tells you how to use the clutch, but not what roads to take to get there. <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it often, it's often geared towards completing the, the, the goal described in the, in the blog post. Yeah. Or, or even if you're in IAM specific documentation, it's like, here's how to do this one little thing. So it's very, uh, micro level. 
And so this is actually one of the big things that I, I tried to bring about in the book, effective IM for AWS, that like, here's some patterns. Uh, well, here's how to architect your AWS accounts and create security and fault and management domains and like, you know, keep dev away from prod and stuff like this. And, and because you have, you have different goals that you're trying to accomplish in dev versus prod, right? Like in dev, we're trying to get fast feedback like really fast feedback on the latest builds and like do integration testing and stuff like that. In production, you know, we never want a database to be deleted. <laughs> like, <laughs> Seems like a fair statement. Right. Where, whereas that might be like a totally reasonable thing to do in dev, right? Especially if you're like provisioning per branch or something. So like, how do you, how do you balance all these concerns and like, so I really, based on my experience leading uh, migrations and talking with customers and so forth, I wanted to put together a, a, a guide to help cloud engineers secure AWS when they're using continuous delivery. Because this stuff is changing all the time. So even if you think you know on day one what things are, it's changed on day two. So that's really interesting. You're talking about guides, and I'm wondering, how are you organizing those? Are you organizing them like by resource? Because I suppose that's the first thing that pops into my head. Is I'm like, mm-hmm. I need to build an S3 bucket or deploy an S3 bucket or you know whatever terminology we're using. And then I'm like, oh yeah, it's probably locked the access to that down now, shouldn't I? So do you do it from uh you know like oh man, I hope none of my clients listen to this podcast ever. Um, and then work our way down, or should we go into a project having like, okay, this is the way that my permissions need to be set up? How do you recommend, yeah. like, uh, if I'm starting fresh and clean on a project, as we all know is what always happens in the real world, um, like, how how would I go into this, and how would I use your guide? For right, that? right, right. So I think it's first uh, most important to think about sort of your architecture, like your account architecture, and I recommend having dedicating a use case per account. So it might be dev for a certain business unit or department. Like these are their applications, or maybe it's a team, but like it, it really depends on how far along the organization is with the cloud and so forth. But, but we want to make uh, accounts are the primary security boundary in AWS and, and we need to give those but use I, cases. Can we just back that up just a second? So by accounts, do you mean the IAM accounts or do you mean the organizational accounts or with um, accounts managed by something like Okta? Or like, where where are we starting from, even with accounts? Because I know that's good a question, question actually that I get from clients a lot because they tend to be scientists rather than um like yeah, good people. question. So here I'm talking about AWS accounts being the ones provisioned within an organization or within an AWS organization. So they you know there's a unique root user for each AWS account, and then within an AWS account you have IAM principles, you know their users and roles. And so what I'm suggesting here is that you first think about how to organize your AWS accounts so that you satisfy both management kind of boundaries and domains, as well as the software delivery lifecycle. So the e-commerce department or, or business unit should get their own part, set of AWS accounts and they should have dev, stage, and prod in each. And, and that's separate from some from the data warehouse and they get their own and and because they're going to use different tools they're going to use different technologies uh whether they should whether they think the database should be deleted is different right and so you don't want vps to have to go like sort out who can do what that's nonsense like we need to like be able to push 
decision making down to teams so that we can like get changes into environments. And then once they, once people have a good place to do their work, we should, you know, we need to provision uh, good principles, good users and roles for them. Uh, so every, you know, you should have SSO, you know, whether that's Okta or AWS SO or something like that. Um, it gives people access. And then you also need roles for each application. And one thing that's interesting about that is that the people, they're going to have different permissions depending on what environment they're in, dev, stage, production. But applications, it should be the same policy all the way through because the policy is really part of the code or part of like enabling the application to do what it needs to do. And that's, that's what I'm on that one a bit though, because like, I mean, we were just saying if we're in development, we might want to be able to delete a database, but if we're in prod, we won't. So then how could the policy for the application itself be the same? Well, the application is probably not deleting its database. People need to be able to. (laughs) That might be a big assumption sometimes. (laughs) Well, so, so there's like control plane stuff like CI CD systems. And, and they, you know, they obviously need the ability to administer things. Although still, you don't want the CD, the CD system deleting uh, production databases. And then once you've kind of got it figured out where it is, you know, where you're going to run applications and, and putting them into particular accounts and creating the right principles, uh, the way I, the way, the next step in the guide really is to figure out how it is that you're going to control access. And this is where I get back to like simplifying IAM. And one of the approaches I like to use is going back to that key policy example, like using resource boundaries to protect your critical data and implement least privilege. And, and, you know, I think least privilege is often used as a way to push responsibility back onto customers. And like everybody talks about it, but it's, it's extremely hard to do because you have there's IAM users and roles, they often get managed policies or policies with very large uh, scopes so that you know, can get anything from S3. You can call S3 get object on any bucket. That's like super common or, you know, same thing for DynamoDB or, or even IAM. But if you want to, we, we have a few critical data sources usually. And so if you can protect them with a resource boundary, like you solve a huge part of the problem because you've now moved the access control directly to the resource and only you know, denying everyone by default and then allowing certain principles to do what they need to do. And then you can teach application teams like, hey, here, here's how we solve, here's how we control access to your application's data. Just like describe the kind of high-level access they need. Do they need to read data, write data, et cetera? And provide a simplified interface to that infrastructure code so that application teams you know, they, they know what they want generally at a high level. Like we need to be able to read or write from this S3 bucket, or these are the folks who should be able to read this data domain's data, you know, that like e-commerce data, let's say. And like they can, they can say that and they can also review that. So it's useful in like the whole delivery process and like you can do peer review of that. Whereas IAM policies that come out of that are so niche and specific and require so much expertise that you know, it, it's hard to collaborate on that. You know, you, and this is where cloud security experts get like just drown in 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 work to do because they're they're down in the weeds. They have to translate from like what an application team needs to like these thousands of API actions potentially, and like go do research. And so, my big point here is like simplify 
like how you control access to data resources using things like resource boundaries encapsulated in an infrastructure code library. Great. So what are the most common uh, resource libraries like, or resource, resource libraries or policies that you tend to start off with? So I've written some and they're, they're published on GitHub on canine security IO's organization. But there are, uh, there's another cool, another tool that works. So, there, and there, there are some other policy libraries I'm aware of for CDK. But this is, I think, kind of packaging, packaging up policy generators into infrastructure code libraries. I don't see a lot of them out in, in like the public yet. When I talk to customers and engineers, they do talk about like they've done some custom templating. Um, and that, and that's good. Like, you know, they're getting, because the key here is you get value out of using and reusing infrastructure code, not writing it and reusing that solution. But yes. I would say that this is like an emerging practice. That's really interesting. I think, I mean, yeah, I think just, I mean, it's interesting that you're saying this because it's starting, it's something that I've started to see a lot more. Like I was uh, kind of evaluating a product I think, called Spacelift. But I think they do something very similar where they have, I think it's more to protect your CI CD from going in and deleting stuff. So you can set like a policy for a particular, I think they call them stacks or something projects and say, okay, the stack should never, ever, ever be able to delete, you know, your production database right. and things like this. So, oh, so it's yeah, the old termination protection. Yeah, that's good to have. Don't delete your important data. Don't delete customer data, guys. Bad idea. I think there's only one way that most people learn about AWS termination protection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so for those uh, who don't know, termination. Yeah. So, so termination protection does kind of what it sounds. It, it uh, prevents data, data resources in particular, databases, and even EC2 instances. You can apply it uh, from being terminated unless you go and explicitly uncheck the terminate protection. Yeah, I know they specifically have that in RDS and the, um, I really like the cloud posse Terraform modules. And I think that was why I initially found their modules is because I was looking for one that would do the KMS encryption and that had the termination protection on it. And then I found them. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Cloud posse writes great, great stuff. So you talked about kind of how more or less how to, how to get started on this, but what, what happens if you already have a huge IAM mess because Maybe I was involved in setting up your IAM and I didn't know what the heck I was doing, so I did it all wrong. And, and now we're learning star, the right way star, to do star. it. How do, how do you overcome that disaster? Do you have to start from scratch or is there a way to, to take control of the chaos? Yeah. So th that's a great question. And it's a, that's a situation that almost everyone who is about three years into their AWS journey is in. If nothing else, they have a bunch of print IAM principles, users and roles running around with a lot of managed AWS managed policies that give like really broad access. So the way, the way I recommend you start is one, get a, get some tooling that's going to help you understand who has access to what. And there's like two big kind of, uh, flavors of this tooling. There are ones that analyze policies. And tell you what a given policy does, and then you go and figure out, you know, who that's attached to, and and like try to sort out the net effects. But it can give you some early easy wins of like identifying your IAM administrators. That's really important. The second one, well, one one of the big tricks is you actually have to analyze all the policies, and there's a lot of places policies can hide, including like inline policies. Don't forget those. Um, <laughs> which are little. 
sort of anonymous policies attached to uh, users and roles that you know people use for like temporary access a lot. But the other thing, the other kind of analyzer out there is uh, one that is going to tell you like literally who has access to what. What would this your app role? What what app? If your e-commerce app has access to the IAM APIs, or if it has access to that S3 bucket, or you know can delete that database, so that's a much more challenging and useful kind of analysis. Uh, and I did spend the last two years building one of those analyzers. So when you and and so I think that the the we were talking about infrastructure code and build and the ability to declare who should have access to something, access to a key, access to a database. That should ideally pair with your access analyzer that's going to tell you who has access to what. Because you want to be able to basically read what you wrote, or like when somebody declares that someone can decrypt or read data with a key, you want to be able to go see in your access analyzer and see that they can read data from that key encrypted with that key. So this, I think, makes a much more usable approach to IAM. If we lift and simplify the language that people are understanding and interacting with IAM, so you're declaring access at a high level, you're understanding who has access at a high level, and then you can implement a process control loop that says like, hey, every month or every week or whatever, we're going to actually go and check who has access to our critical data sources and then like converge it to what makes sense. The analyzer tool you were talking about, that's one of the products from K9 Security, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. So, uh, you know, it, it analyzes access to APIs and data sources and the kind of problems that we, that, that customers uncover and that the cloud and DevOps people like feel that are, are lurking there, but they don't, they don't know exactly where. Common ones are things like, there's just really broad access to all the data, uh, all the data sources, particularly S3. You know that Amazon S3 full access is on unexpected uh, principles, or one that is becoming more common is container clusters, where applications are running as the container cluster node instance role, and that instance role has accreted all kinds of access over time. And so there's basically no security boundary between these applications. They're all running on the same cluster and you get like one, one application gets popped and it's, it's kind of game over in that environment. Yeah. That's one. I struggled with that one for a long time with the cluster role and the instance role, trying to understand what the difference between those two were. But yeah, like that's, if you want a, a way to let a compromised container completely take over your AWS account, that confusion is a perfect gateway. Yeah. So, so, and to make it a little more concrete, I'm talking about basically an ECS task or a Kubernetes service pod running with the underlying container host role, which should only have like kind of control plane access, maybe some IAM and the ability to like pull images and auto scaling stuff, maybe but not application level data access privileges. So, and, and like to come back at a, at a higher level here, I think one of the things that's critical is to simplify AWS IAM and make it usable enough that you can actually scale it out to application and development teams. Like it shouldn't, 
your your whole strategy shouldn't be, depend on one or two specific experts like being involved with every policy uh, authoring activity or analysis activity it doesn't it literally doesn't scale so like what do we do when security in my mind is not that different from availability or reliability or performance it's an illity in my mind <laughs> and, and like we just we have not as an industry taken the time and energy and effort to simplify it and package it and productize it like we've done auto scaling like yeah. we can make it usable like we know how to do this we're devops people like you know Presumably. let's do it <laughs> i'm wondering like where you see this going because one sort of you know a trend that i've noticed is that especially with some of the products that are being released like through aws the only example that i can think of right now of course is the aws amplify it actually it pushes a lot of your uh IM privileges for you like just as a part of the framework so I'm wondering, do you see this as being, it's going to be like its own separate set of tools? Is it going to get kind of integrated with uh, various frameworks for deployment over time? Where do you see this going? Where do you think it should go? So I think that's a great question. And if you look at what the security industry does, generally, they, they build products for security people. And I think cloud and DevOps are going to change that. That just like with auto scaling and performance and reliability, like more of this stuff is just going to be built into the way we define our application deployments and uh, deploy them. And they'll, they'll be built into our delivery process somehow. Now, Amplify is a, is a very interesting use case because like, yeah, and, and it's an example of something that AWS is doing, which is in some of their services, they're starting to manage some of this for you. And what we find is they, they usually make pretty good policies or they make good policies, but under certain assumptions. And one of which is that you have very narrowly defined, narrowly scoped AWS accounts. So AWS is a big proponent of, at this point, like one account per team and, or like one account per application. And so to give you a specific example, like the CDK generates what looks like when, when you're writing CDK code, you're like, I'm excited. I'm going to have a least privileged policy here. And what it does is it will generate a key policy or a bucket policy that allows just whom you've, it, it, it includes allow statements for only whom you have explicitly allowed. The problem is, is it doesn't close off access other things. And so that was one of the things that we work with with the customer that want that's using CDK to and you know they want to put this in their pipeline. Uh, they want like true least privileged policies in their delivery process, and like it was it was quite tricky to get that to integrate essentially with that framework and get the right policy to come out of it. So I think you know what we'll find is that when AWS does something like that, they're 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 building policies uh, for very large markets. And that if you are really interested, if you really care about your security, you might have to go further than that. Um, and you certainly want to go look and see what it actually does, because it might be, you know, it, it, it's it's that policy amplifies designed not for security uh, first kind of companies or, or environments. It's it's like for a very broad market. So we should also use K9 security, right? I mean, it'd be great. Uh, <laughs> but I'm trying to help self-promotion here. I don't yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we we definitely, the dent we want to make in the world is, is to literally improve the security of customer data uh, that's running around there. 
and to enable DevOps uh, folks to like be confident that uh, that data is secure and, and to like lift the load from the DevOps and cloud people who are actually doing this work. Because like in our interviews, like we find that it's the cloud and DevOps and site reliability engineers that are offering policies. Like security, po- security people are, are sometimes involved in, and in certain industries, they, they are much more involved, like finance banking, like you find it, um, more involvement. But like, if you think about the attention that security has gotten in terms of like headlines, I don't feel we've had commensurate attention given to like making it really become usable and integrated into our delivery process. Like we have performance or availability. And so, yeah, we're, you know, we're a proponent and I'm like pushing that model. And like we're building directly for DevOps and cloud people. Hey folks, I'm here with JD from Raycon. You know, JD, we were talking just a second ago about empathy and it seems like a common concept within the programming community. And yet when we're building features for customers, a lot of times we call it done when it passes CI, deploys and doesn't give us errors. And that really doesn't seem very empathetic when it comes to our customers because we're not looking at what they're doing. Do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at, at the end of the day, until until your code actually hits the customer, um, you don't really know if it's any good. Uh, you know, everybody uses things in so many different weird and wonderful ways. You can only really debug in production. Um, yeah, I've been there. It's old, done. Yeah. It's not done. Oh, crap. It's not done. <laughs> I got to go fix it. Now it's done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And when we see things like error reports flowing into Raygun, right. you know, a lot of the time it's things where you just kind of go, oh, that was a configuration that as a developer, mm-hmm. I, I didn't think could exist, but actually here's an example. And so it's connecting that code to customer and your development team through to real users and their experiences, which to your point, builds real empathy. And the best software teams care a lot about how their customers are experiencing their software. Right. It's kind of the feedback from the app, but it's also kind of this meta feedback as we do better, we tend to get less of this negative input back from our customer, which really does reflect empathy. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think to your point earlier about CICD pipelines, like we've done an amazing amount of work as an industry to automate getting to prod really fast. But if you really want to go super fast, you need to close that loop with real-time feedback from prod back to the dev team. And that allows them to do things like fail forward and just do, you know really leverage that investment in CICD and, and, and it can turn into a real superpower. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to encourage you folks, yeah, set up your CICD, but then go sign up for Raygun. They'll actually give you a free trial and you can get it at raygun.com. What if you're not using AWS? Do you or do, do you support Google or Azure or DigitalOcean or do you have plans to or do you have rec- alternatives you can recommend? So K9 doesn't support uh, GCP or, or Azure yet, though our, our model and our approach does. And that, that was explicit because you want to be able to declare, oh yeah, I read data, write data, uh, this person should be able to administer or stuff like that. There are some, there are some sort of similar access analysis tools out there that do cover all three clouds, uh, all three of the, the big ones in the US or in North America. But one of the things that I find challenging about them is that they're, they're built for security teams. And so the information is designed to flow through security and then like, Oh, here's a notification that this thing has excess permissions. Maybe you go do something with it. Like, and that might be triggered via an email or a Jira ticket or something like that. And what doesn't exist so much in the market is like we were talking about earlier is 
libraries, infrastructure code libraries, to be able to just declare this and like have the right thing happen on every deploy. So that's why we, and, and, you know, that's really part of our thesis that we think it's really important to be able to control access and define access in the same way that you interpret it and make it like a really scalable loop so anybody can check if things are right. Usability projects are so interesting because like, you know, we have all this tech and we have all these Legos and we can all presumably build anything, but like, can you actually get in there and build it? And can the person who like really understands the problem, so the, uh, the business problem or, you know, whatever kind of problem it is that they are trying to solve, can they actually go into AWS and, you know, and build out the solution that they need? And I think a lot of times that answer is no. Like, I think it's improving. I think it's even, you know, even from a couple of years ago, I think it's significantly improved and we're getting all these services, you know, like LightSail and even the EC2 launch manager is so much better now and all these kind of things. But yeah, just, I really like seeing projects like this that are really like, this stuff exists. We just need to make it like actually usable and accessible to people. Even if you're not an expert in it, you should still be able to do it and get set up with like sort of maybe a sane set of defaults and uh, just kind of carry on with your life from there. Yeah, I think that's a general takeaway to build when we build building blocks, build them for non-experts so that you can scale your own team's abilities and capabilities. When it comes to defining the access permissions and policies for a specific application, is that something that lives in the the repo for that application? So it's a good question. And in general, I recommend that both identity and resource policies for an application live with the application because they tend to have, like, it's got the same delivery lifecycle. And so, you know, if you're adding a DynamoDB table that needs encryption, there's probably some application code that's going to be using it, right? Yeah. And this is, and this is really where like you can use things like service control policies to control blast radius. So service control policies are policies that, that are defined at the AWS organization level, but apply to individual accounts. And so you can do things like say in, in the prod portion of the organization or the production portion of the organization, you can say delete Dynamo DB table is disallowed or DynamoDB table, delete table is, is denied for production, but allow that in dev. And so you can control blast radius there. And, uh, you know, especially if you enable app teams to generate policies and, and configure policies with usable components, just like you may do for an ECS task deployment. Hopefully they're not having to write like all that from scratch, like, you know, get something simpler, like we, you know, we deploy things in a certain way here. Okay, fine. Like there's a little library that does it. Then once you've simplified that and like you've like put the stamp of approval and security and everyone has reviewed like the kinds of things this thing generates, like let it go. Like it's a product now. Yeah. And I, one of the hidden benefits I like about that approach is then when you change that security level or make a change to the permissions there, it goes through the standard Git workflow. So it's going to be a change to the code, which is going to trigger someone to open a pull request and then someone else reviews it. And so it, it makes it really explicit and obvious to the people who build and own that application that there's a security change being implemented. Yep. Yep. There's a change history and you can also learn something about like you broaden who is able to learn about security that way too, because 
Terraform, you know, when that Terraform plan generates, it's going to give you a little diff of what happened there. And you can go and see like, okay, well, that, that added these actions. And then you've got the whole change history. And another thing in terms of enabling and scaling out adoption of, of security practices, I think it's important to give people a place to practice uh, with these tools that's in a safe place, whether it's a sandbox um, or maybe with like an example application. Um, like like you probably have, uh, many folks have little training applications that they've used for their reference architectures. But like once you've got this building block, make sure it gets integrated with that reference application along with the other building blocks and like train people on it and show people what happens and give them the ability to tweak the controls in a safe way. They can learn and then show them like, be able to show them what with a with a access analysis tool what the before and after was in terms of the, the access to that data and what that might be um, from an, an attacker's perspective or an accident's perspective. <laughs> I heard there was a quote I heard the other day. It's like um, we didn't get hacked; we just had an unplanned distributed data backup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, different things. Different things. Jenkins Jenkins reduced our cloud bill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I would argue a lot more things are probably uh, accidentally done internally than like externally. I would be worrying. I worry so much more about myself messing things up than I worry about like other people messing things up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I wish I were cool enough to get hacked. I just do stupid stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody cares about me enough to get hacked. I've been hacked and I do stupid stuff. Usually people running Bitcoin miners on my open VMs or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a common one. I did have actually yeah. my first business website on WordPress got hacked. It was showing like a cheap Chinese jewelry store, which I was very offended because like I wasn't even necessarily that upset about getting hacked by a jewelry store, but I really wanted for it to be like a nice jewelry store. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I had to take it down. The hosting people. I know, right? Like, I mean, just just give me a cut. It'll be fine. Yeah. Can I at least get the employee discount? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering, you know, you're talking about having a sandbox and um, an environment. I'm wondering, like, does K9 security or maybe a similar, you know, a similar framework, does it actually go through and generate these things that uh, I like to call them like tests for dummies? I make them a lot for myself. And like, I'm the dummy here. You lot are, of course, brilliant. But I like to have like really explicit tests that like if I think that I should have access to this thing, like I actually write them in my Terraform code and it will execute um, like Python PyTest. And, you know, if I shouldn't have access to an S3 bucket, I'll make sure, OK, I don't have access to an S3 bucket and I might need to make uh, test IAM credentials and things because I'm a deeply paranoid individual who has both accidentally deleted data and had other people accidentally delete data and all this kind of stuff. So now like I really go through and I really write a lot of these tests for dummies. And I would love it if somebody else would write these tests for dummies for me because my favorite code is code that I don't write. (laughs) Yeah. So so that's it's actually some some messaging we're we're starting to integrate more. The the idea that you are able to unit test your access that you declared with K9. So, and of course we have, one of the, the funny parts here is we give away, like the the policy generators are free on GitHub. And like, there's a number of reasons for that. One of which is that just that like, I know what it's like. I've built many, like literally a thousand or more pipelines that use infrastructure code. So like, I know it's, it's important to be able to just like reuse this all over the place. 
but the that process control loop where we're verifying uh, who should have access. I think there's an interesting question of like whether that should be done in your like if you're if you're deploying application related policies in an application delivery pipeline, where should that verification be done? Should it be done in that delivery pipeline? Because you already may have like like we're providing you some policy libraries at least, but it, certainly uh, I think we could do more there. And so yeah, we're actually it's funny you asked about that on our roadmap is to create a little CLI or something else, uh, some other component, maybe a data provider in Terraform that can be used to like assert certain access. We have internally, you know, we built this access analyzer and really the most important part is the test suite. So we built on top of the simulate, the, the AWS IAM simulator APIs. And we have an extensive test suite where we declared like, well, given this principle and this, these policies and all this stuff, like this is the access we expect. And even as someone, I'll tell you, that, like, the reason I don't write my own policies is that that test suite has like over 250, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's probably 300 or, or more specific tests in it at this point. And I wrote those by hand. <laughs> um, or I, I define them. It's a data-driven thing, right? Um, but my 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 initial guess or my initial answer on, on what the access was was incorrect like 25% of the time or 20% of the time, which just gives you like an indication of like how hard it is to like understand the net effects of, of what's going on. And so like I, I look at policies myself, but like I actually trust the tooling at this point more than my own analysis. That is very cool. I'm seeing that happen kind of in the data space too. There's um, this library that I like. It's called Great Expectations. And what you do is you feed it a data set either from like a CSV file. I know I, I like it too. You know, yeah. either from a CSV file or from a database. And then it creates like unit tests of your data. And it will say like, you know, this is kind of the mean, median mode. And so then if you try to push data that's like way outside of that, it will actually give you like a warning saying like, not, you know, are, are you sure about this? Is this what you really want to be doing? And then at the end, it generates you this very nice report, which is just very nice to be able to give, uh, especially like, you know, because a lot of times we're working with people who aren't necessarily technical. I'm not going to give them like my make file or something like that, or even like a markdown file. I want like a nicely generated report to be able to give to them at the end of the day. And so I really like tools that are doing this for me. So yeah, if you want any feature requests. Yeah. So I, I took a note. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm currently so working through ideas on that. So maybe, maybe we can, maybe we can do a little interview later. Um, love, to, love, love, love to get your feedback. I really like the fact that on the show, I get to do so many feature requests. That might be my favorite <laughs> thing. I do this like every week. Call it the being my problem segment of the show. <laughs> The next evolution of it will just be moving from a podcast to a Twitch stream where we just type it in on the fly. File GitHub issues. Yeah, but I, I think what you're describing, I think what you're describing is the future. Like, like somebody should go to declare that. So let's talk about your book real quick. Um, Effective IAM, available at effectiveiam.com for free, right? And I think that's a great resource. It's It's actually one of the one of the tech books that I think is really easy to read and comprehend. You know, I feel like a lot of the tech books I read might as well be written in a, a foreign language. But this one actually, I like, there's a lot of good examples in there. And like, hey, here's what this, 
here's what this could look like. Here's why we're doing it this way. And here's what the end result looks like. Yeah. Well, thanks, Will. So Effective IAM for AWS is written for cloud engineers first and, and site reliability and DevOps and, and also security engineers and so forth. But it's really about how to secure AWS IAM within the context of continuous delivery. And so it, we've actually run through a bunch of the, the story arc already. It's first we architect, then we figure which are the best, figure out which are the best parts of IAM, which, well, what are we going to use? And then how are we going to package that up into some reusable bits that are going to go into continuous delivery pipelines? And then how do we understand what it is that we have and what's out there? And then finally, how do we create a, a whole process control loop that relieves the pressure on cloud security experts, which there's usually only one or two individuals, scale security out to app teams, to the entire cloud team and gives folks and also gives you the language and like help you develop a strategy using influencer techniques to actually enable and motivate the organization to like do this. Because like, I'll I'll tell you the, the most shocking question, and it's not intended to be shocking, but like when I'm doing uh, customer interviews, customer problem interviews, I'll often ask, so when's the last time you actually reviewed who has access to what in, in AWS? And the answer isn't just like, oh, we haven't done that recently or like we, or we haven't done that. It's, I can see by their face. The realization is like, we haven't even thought about doing that. Even though like SOC 2 and all these other frameworks like require us to do these things. Like we're getting, somehow we're getting a stamp and I, and I understand how that happens. It's often like we're reviewing who has access via Okta, you know, via the SSO system. But in terms of DevOps, like we want to, let's integrate security. And like, this is, this is a loop that's going to show you how to do it. So I'm trying to like, in terms of building a guide, it's like, well, here are these building blocks and then here's the final process to enable this at scale. Well, right. very cool. I think it's a, it's a worthy mission. Yeah, and the book is free, uh, although you can buy a PDF and soon there will be an EPUB, but uh, it's free because it needs to be out there in the world. <laughs> there you go. So you got no excuses. Yeah, and there's a, there's an offer there. You can always schedule some time to talk with me about cloud security. Uh, it's right there. There's an offer to have a discussion. Any questions? Yeah, that's great. I'm actually, you know, I opened it up to start to look at it and I'm really happy that you talk about uh, architecting the AWS organizations for scale because that is something... Like I knew it was something that I needed, but I just, the, the documentation just did not fit my mental model, I suppose. And I got very, very confused. It took me quite a while to figure it out. So I really wish that it, this had been around when I was trying to figure that out. And I'll bet I'll still learn something. <laughs> well, now it exists and, and it is designed as a practitioner's guide and to elevate the highest and best features to use within IAM. Right on. Is there anything else we need to cover? Let's do some picks then. (laughs) No more questions, Your Honor. (laughs) Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had 
with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. All right, Jillian, you want to start us off with picks? Sure. So uh, I bought an actual physical book for the first time in a very, very long time. Because uh, nice. we moved and we're pretty transient. And it, it's always so sad when I have to you know, give away my books or uh, store them in my extremely understanding relatives' houses who already have entirely too much of my stuff around. Because again, we're very transient people. Um, so I didn't, so I haven't bought any physical books in a while is the deal with that. I just had a Kindle, which is also nice because I'm not really willing to admit that I need reading glasses, but I really do. But I bought uh, some <laughs> comics called, they're called Creed Reimaginary and they were just, they were just really good. They were like very nicely put together. They had very nice like colors. It was just really nice to hold a physical book again. And so for anybody out there who's wondering, like, should I be holding a, a physical book? Like, yeah, on occasion, go buy yourself an actual book. It's really, really nice. And in particular, this book is really good. I kind of like this sort of brave new world where people can, like, publish as sort of indie authors or indie creators and we can all just get our stuff out there and it can be all, you know, like, crowdsourced and just, just you know, directly with the people you actually want to get in contact with. So, so I really like supporting projects like that, too. So that was nice. And I got, like, some cool stickers and things like that. So if you're looking for anything like that, go I don't know, a Kickstarter or Indiegogo or something, and there's probably a million projects you could go back. It's fun. It's also dangerous to your wallet. So maybe that's my other pick is don't do it too much. <laughs> right on. Jonathan, got any picks for us? I do. I'm going to, I'm going to do a shameless will plug today. As we're Ooh. recording this, my podcast came out just the other day, uh, where I had Will on as a guest. And we had a really fun conversation talking about his YouTube channel and some behind the scenes stuff. And we even talked about Muppets. So you should totally check that out. <laughs> the, the Tiny DevOps podcast, learn about how Will feels about the, the term YouTuber. <laughs> right. my, my second pick is a, is a little bit more archaic, but it, it's really cool. I'm, I'm in Guatemala now, as, as you may recall from last week, visiting my family, my wife's family. And it reminded me, I, I own a hat, a really cool hat that uh, I haven't actually seen for years because I left it at my mother's house. So I'm really excited. I'm going to be going to my mother's house in Kansas in just a few weeks. I'm going to get this hat back again. So whether you want to buy a hat like this or not, you should visit the website because it's really cool. There's some cool information about how these hats are made, uh, the history of these hats, and which celebrities wear these hats. But I'm sure you've all heard of a Panama hat. Uh, they're they're right. sort of white style, classic hats. They're really, they were really common in the 1920s. In some of the old movies, I think, uh, what's the actor's name? The, the Hannibal movies, he wore a Panama hat. And there's a lot, there's a lot in the movies. Anyway, go to brentblack.com, B-R-E-N-T-B-L-A-C-K.com. It's the Panama hat company. And just read through the website for a while. Now, if you want to buy a hat, you totally can. And these hats are super amazing, but they're not cheap. These are handmade hats. They're hand woven. The cheapest ones are 500 or $600. Oh and man. That's the cheapest one. <laughs> they go up to tens of thousands of dollars. So 
Oh. I mean, if you want to buy one, really please send, send me an email and tell me about it. I'd love to hear that you bought a hat for my recommendation. But even if you don't, just go read about it. It's really, really cool. That's my recommendation. Right on. Steven, you have any picks to share with us? Yeah, I will. I will say that when I was in Costa Rica years ago, I was definitely tempted to purchase a Panama hat on the lower end. But I do yeah, the cheaper ones obviously do exist. And you can get them at tourist shops for like five or 10 bucks sometimes. Yeah. Those, those are the kind that you sit on them and they crumble and they fall apart. The ones right. on this website are the high quality ones. Uh, so yes, you don't have, yes. well, you can get the look for cheaper price, obviously. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. So given that we're talking about books and, and Jillian, that, uh, in your feedback, and, and will your feedback on like how it's written. So the path I followed for that book is straight out of Rob Fitzgerald's How to Write Useful Books. And this is a book about how to write books that are useful to specific people and a specific niche and to become the best book for one type of role, one person and for nonfiction and I'm sharing this today because I think it's because writing and communicating is such an undervalued skill, I think, in tech generally and in DevOps and so forth. Like we need to scale. We can do that. One of the ways to do that is by code. And what, another way is with writing and, and to be clear about it. And so How to Write Useful Books is a fantastic book. There's also a community for nonfiction uh, authors. You can join if you're looking at to write something. I, ha- I highly, highly recommend it. How to write useful books. I don't remember what it cost. And I'm in the community now, so it's cost like $18 a month for a while. But it saved probably eight months writing the wrong thing. Oh, wow. And, and I've written another book, Docker in Action. And I can tell you that writing Effective IAM was so much better from a process perspective and like I'm, I'm happier with the result. Um, I love the result. Wow. That's a great plug for it because when you read effective IAM, it's like, wow, Steven's writing this just for me. Mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. I love it. So, and, and it's, and Rob Fitzgerald is a bit of a genius. He's got another one I'm going to plug here. So he is deep, has gone deep, deep, deep into customer development, lean and lean startup type stuff. So he has another book called The Mom Test Book, which is actually not named all that well, or it's, it's like a subtle, it, it's not, it's not whether your mom can understand it. It's actually how to, how to ask questions and investigate a problem space in such a way that not even your mom can lie to you. And it's not that she lies to you intentionally. She's just trying to be nice. Right. So, so my question about like, when was the last time you reviewed your access in AWS? That's a, that's a mom test book style test question because it asks something specific about something that happened in the past. And people aren't going to lie about that. They're not going to jog, you know, they're not going to put me on like, Oh yeah, we did it last week. No, like they're going to think and say like, Oh yeah, we did it. We did it six months ago or we've never done it. Right. Um, as opposed to like, we want to do it. Yeah, it's on our road. I want to second. I want to second the recommendation. I read the mom test. I also read his book. By, by the way, I think his name is actually Rob Fitzpatrick, not Fitzgerald. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, it is. Sorry, Rob. But the mom test is a great book, and I've also read another by him called How to Design and Teach Workshops that uh, work every time. Which sounds like it's kind of a, it might be a version of your write useful books, 
with a slant towards workshops rather than books. So I'm going to, I'm going to pick up the book you recommended now. Yeah. Rob, Rob Fitzpatrick is a genius and he's super open to conversation. So like you can just go book some time with him, like via Zoom right now, if you want. Like he loves talking about this. Uh, about customer, about like understanding customers and problems and teaching. Right. That is awesome because that is one of my biggest pet peeves <laughs> with like engineers and technical people is that I feel like a lot of them focus too much on the tech and not like the people that the tech is supposed to be solving a problem for or even just the problem that it's supposed to be solving. Let's like, let's just get to that far first. So, yeah, yep. so I think that's great with the focus on uh, communication and having things be more open and usable. Right on. Well, I'm going to pick this week. I meant I picked this a couple of weeks ago, but since Jillian, since you brought up the need for reading glasses, I picked this last week when I started using them. I've been using these eye drops called Acuity that are specifically for people who can't see up close. And so far, I'm just super excited with the way they're working out because I don't have to carry my glasses around or wear glasses. And I was impressed at how well they actually work. So if you need reading glasses, check out Acuity Eye Drops. They've been uh, very cool for me. Hopefully your results are the same. And then uh, my second pick is I want to pick, since Stephen didn't, I want to pick his book, Effective IAM. Go check it out. It's it's a very cool read. It's a very easy read, informative, and I think you're just going to be blown away at how much you learn from that book, regardless of what your experience with IAM is. Thank you, Will. Yeah. And uh, Stephen, if people want to follow up with you more about this, how can I get in touch with you? Well, you can. Uh, I'm on Twitter at spensley, but you know you can come to the website caninesecurity.io, and uh, we can probably get a link available for that. But Effective IM uh, is also at EffectiveIM.com. And I'm uh, pretty sure there's an email there, EffectiveIM at caninesecurity.io. And you can email anytime. Right on. Uh, or schedule that, schedule that session to talk about your cloud security problems. And if, they're, and if you're interested enough in this stuff, you know, we're happy to drop some uh, access analysis reports to you nightly. Right on. There you go. Well, thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for having me. Right on. All right. We'll see you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.